This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. We're live, and I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. Hey, yesterday I I said we didn't get any calls, and we got a bunch of emails and text messages that said there were a bunch of people trying to call, but the phones just kept ringing, so evidently there was a problem at the studio with the phones, but I think it's all settled today, so we would love your live calls and questions. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send your questions to us that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Before I get to the questions, since it's Tuesday, I don't really have a bunch of stuff to talk about. But, but ladies especially, uh, I'd love to encourage you to to um, watch and listen to um, Stephanie Marquez's Sweet Summer Devotion. I got to watch it today, and um, man, was I I was blessed. Uh, you know, I've known them for a long time, and then suddenly you you, you find out things that you never knew. And it's just a testimony to the goodness, the faithfulness of God. I got to tell you, uh, she broke my heart at the same time. It was so encouraging and so raw and so real. Um, please go to calvaryessay.com. Uh, go to the recent studies. And the first one that will come up on the left side is the Sweet Summer Devotions. And Stephanie's is the first one. I promise you, uh, you won't regret taking the time uh, I wish I keep saying this but I wish we could have the questions I can I can only begin to imagine the depth of questions and ministry that was taking place uh, after she shared her heart yesterday so um, God bless you that's wonderful okay let's get to questions and then we'll wait for your phone calls the first question is from Henry He says, I know we can't buy the Holy Spirit, so I don't understand the parable of the ten virgins. Could you please explain? Um, Henry, I can. You know, one of the problems that we have with parables is that we try to read too much into them. Every parable has one major point. 
Now, there are some other applications, but every parable has one major point, and the ten virgins is exactly that. Now, remember the context of, of uh, Matthew 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse. So Jesus is warning Israel, and he's telling them that, that there's that, that horrible things are going to happen. I mean, the, 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 the day of the Lord is going to come, and you're going to get caught. And, of course, we know there was a short-term fulfillment in 70 A.D., but there's also, obviously, a long-term fulfillment on the day of the Lord from Revelation chapter 19. So after all of that, he's telling them in the parable of the ten virgins to be ready. So he says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom uh, was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy. And I gotta move my computer down. Uh, and they and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, "Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him!" Then all of the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, "Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out." No, they replied, "There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself." But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him and to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Late the others came also, Sir, sir, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. And then Jesus' summary of this is, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now I'm going to take some time with this until we get some phone calls. This is really important. I keep telling um, our church, I keep telling this radio audience, Jesus is coming at any moment. Now, he's coming for the church, for us first. We're going to be raptured. So it's a little different than the context here. But what Jesus is saying to, to Israel, remember, he came to his own and his own received him not, is you need to be ready at any moment. Jesus was standing there before them. He was teaching them this wonderful truth. And they weren't ready to hear it. So now he tells them this parable about, about readiness. And the only point that matters in this at all, Henry, the only one is that we need to be ready for the return of the Lord. He's coming at a time that we don't know. Now, all of the imagery about the wedding and the bridegroom um, is a story that Jews would have understood. We, Unless we do some studying, we wouldn't understand it. But in a Jewish wedding in the day of Jesus, um, you know, there, there, the father would, would honor the engagement, the betrothal, and the son, he'd provide some materials for the son. The son would go and build a house and took him some time to build the house. And before the, the son who, who could say, okay, I'm ready to get married, uh, the father would come and inspect the house. And always, and I mean always, the father would check it out and say, no, I'm not ready for your bride yet. It's just not ready. Do this, do that. And this would go on. Well, the whole idea after a, a, a year of waiting and preparing one day, in the middle of the night, the father would go over and he would get his son. He would go inspect. He'd say, okay, it's ready. Go get your, your bride. And that's when the wedding party would go in. Now, in this particular case, the attendants or the, 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 the ten virgins, um, only five of them were ready. In other words, five of them knew that that wedding call could come at any moment. The other five got a little tired of waiting. You know, that's kind of, we have a tendency to do that. 
And they sort of just took it for, well, you know, it's been every night. He hasn't come yet. Well, Jesus says, a lazy and wicked servant says his master delays his coming. So, Henry, that's the only thing that this parable says, is that we need to be ready. And obviously for you and for me and everybody waiting for the return of Jesus now, we need to live our lives here on earth as strangers, expecting that at any moment Jesus could come for his church. And I believe with all of my heart that moment has nearly arrived, so we all of us need to be ready. Dee Dee asks a tough question. Pastor Ron, what is the biblical position on the removal of statues and changing names of schools and buildings, etc.? Um, Dee Dee, the, the Bible obviously doesn't really know any of this nonsense, so there's really no position. Remember a couple of things. First, our kingdom is not of this world. So the Bible deals with the kingdom of God and our um, relationship in this world in, in terms of, of, of rightly representing Jesus. So I think what we can do is we have to look at questions like this that the Bible obviously couldn't foresee, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, uh, and, and say, let's apply some principles. Now, the removal of statues, um, nothing I say, Didi, today is to be construed as um, accepting violence or lawlessness uh, as Christians, it's our responsibility to obey the law. And what we see now going on is statues and and uh, protests and things being um, um, threatened and torn down. And and you know it's it's not being done the right way. So I want that out of the way. I'm not approving this, but we also have to understand that some of these statues are really offensive to a large segment of the population in the United States of America. You know, I was just reading a, a sports story um, about the, the Mississippi State flag, and there's now some athletes who refuse to represent their schools, University of Mississippi or, uh, or uh, Mississippi State. They refuse to um, uh, represent them as long as the stars and bars are part of the, the Mississippi State flag. And, you know, we can talk about we're rewriting history, but some history should be rewritten. Imagine if you were an African-American football player and the state that you represented also represented by use of the flag, the stars and the bars. Imagine also represented racism changing of names of buildings. You know, we've got a lot of buildings around here, especially in the South, that are named for people. Now, I didn't, I, I read this, so I don't, this isn't something I'm making up. But uh, uh, the conservative commentator, Ben Shapiro, was asked by a CNN, a black CNN news anchor, uh, about his position on, on taking down the names of buildings or changing flags. And uh, um, one of the questions was Robert E. Lee High School. And uh, at first, Ben Shapiro was against it. And the news guy asked him, said, so uh, you're a Jew, and Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew. He said, imagine if your kids were forced to go to Adolf Hitler High School. And he never really thought of it in that context before. 
And I, Didi, I said, because what I want to do is, I want, we, we need to be nice. We need to be considerate of people. And I'm guessing at this, but I think 38% as, as late as last week, I think this is what I read, 38% of the population in the United States is black, African-American descent. And we need to treat them as equals. Again, we wouldn't want to be offended every time we walked into a building or a stadium. Um, I think part of the problem is that we've got such lawlessness that's ruling and reigning now in our world that that you know we just we get offended by by the lawlessness and we don't think through the problem. So, Dee, I believe that we shouldn't have um, statues or buildings uh, or awards that are named after people who supported slavery. Now, even as I say that, I realize that there's going to be some difficulty with that. Our founding fathers, most if not all of them, were slave owners. And we've got to be able to discern the difference between the way life was then and the way it is now. You know, people owned slaves. Some of them were wonderful to their slaves. And that was the only life that, that the world knew then. Um, and, and yet, because they're slave owners, we're going to throw out George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and, and, and the other founding fathers, when in fact, um, we've got to try to understand the nuances of this difficulty. I think if we look at it strictly in terms of statues and high schools and buildings with names of people, I think we can find better ways to represent the love of Jesus Christ. I don't think this should be a conservative versus left issue. I think it ought to be a kindness and love issue. So, Didi, I'm going to make a lot of people mad saying that, but the truth of the matter is, is, is first and foremost, love, love, love. 340-9585, um, I'm sure you've all heard about the NASCAR driver, the only African-American NASCAR driver uh, who um, took a stand against the, the, the stars and bars being flown at NASCAR races. Um, fellow drivers supported him. NASCAR supported him. But the people in, in a, a, a noose was put at his workstation uh, in a very tight security area, by the way. And um, I think we've got to... We're better than that. We're all better than that. Danny says, Pastor, and who is the he spoken of in Second Thessalonians 2, 7? Let me read it, Danny, and then I'll answer. It says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Uh, obviously, this speaks about the rapture of the church, Danny. I hope it's obvious to you. And what, what, what we're being told is that the, the secret power of lawlessness is all around us. And uh, the question I just answered is a good example of that. Um, but it also, in this verse, indicates that there is something that's keeping that secret power of lawlessness 
from being abundantly manifest. Now, we look around at how bad things are, and we think, well, it's never been this bad, and maybe that's true, at least in this country. But the truth is, it could be a lot worse. Now, the He is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who is restraining evil, and that's really the word in Greek. It's restraining. He's the one who restrains it. It's like evil is pushing and evil is shoving, but the Holy Spirit is stronger in restraining it. Now, it says that he'll be taken out of the way. And we know the Holy Spirit is God, and God can never be taken out of the way. So this is a reference, Danny, to the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of Christians throughout the world. So we're sort of the governor that God has chosen in this world to keep things from getting really, really bad. I mean, it's already bad, but it would be much, much worse if, in fact, the church wasn't here acting as a restrainer to evil. So that's the he, Danny. It's the Holy Spirit, but it's not the person of the Holy Spirit as much as it's the Holy Spirit working in the lives and through the lives of believing Christians. So that's the answer. Uh, A day is coming when the rapture of the church happens. That restraining power of light um, in the in the church, the body of Christ, will be removed, and then it will be as dark, darker than it's ever been, uh, dark as it was in the days of Noah. So, Danny, good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Rita. She says, "What changes do you foresee now that we're in a post-Christian America?" Um, Rita, your question is so broad, so general. And I'm not sure what you mean. We have been in a post-Christian America for a very, very long time. I've been saved 29 years. We've been in post-Christian America all 29 years of my salvation. So uh, I think the changes that we are seeing are just sort of the beginning of those birth pains. Um, um, you know, we kick God uh, out of schools, out of uh, prayer, out of schools. We've 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 murdered 65 million babies. Um, we just there's we live in a post-Christian America. Jesus isn't welcome in our country any longer, except of course in the lives and hearts of Christians. And so what we see is the change to to hardness. We we see to open evil. We see this lawlessness that I talked about uh, a moment ago. Um, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And I think Rita that what we've got to do is be prepared for things to get much, much worse before the Lord returns for His church. You know, if you read Second Timothy chapter 3, uh, the beginning in the first verse, it describes what the world is going to look like. And, and while the world that we live in is starting to look more and more like that every day, it's not like that yet. I mean, it says people will be without natural affection, and that word for natural affection is feminine in form, and and it talks about the affection, the the instinctive affection that a mother has for her brand-new baby. And, of course, when you're killing babies, you you see mothers deserting babies all the time. Uh, It's going to get much, much worse than that. Not only that, I think, Rita, that the, the biggest change that we who are believers need to be ready for is that we are going to face persecution in this country as never before. In fact, as we never dreamed possible. I mean, if you look at 
what the left in this country is trying to do, completely denude the landscape of, of any vestige of Christ, the church, we are going to be made out to be the problem in the world. We're already called bigots. We're called narrow-minded. And you know, it's sort of in one ear, out the other. I don't think it's going to be in one ear and out the other for very much longer. I think we are going to face active opposition for our faith in Jesus Christ. You remember when there were um, um, in some of our our mass murders, and whenever you see a mass murder, um, whether it's at a high school or, or otherwise, it's always the devil. We'd see the mass murders asking people, are you a Christian? Where is your Christ now? And if they said, yes, I'm a Christian, they'd shoot him. Um, I really believe that we're going to face persecution. It's indescribable, unthinkable. Christianity and the viewpoint of Christ certainly is not welcome on our college campuses. You're laughed down if you say you believe in Christ. Now, Rita, I think the one change that I hope we see is that Christians will be more emboldened to share their faith. That's my prayer, that we will become much more evangelism-centric, that, that we'll, we'll, we'll sense the urgency of the hour, and we'll be telling people about Jesus. So those are the changes that I foresee, just more of the same uh, in increasing measure all the time. So Rita, if that's too general, it's because your question was kind of general. If you need to ask again, send in a question, and we'll I'll get a little more specific with you. Okay, three minutes left in this half of the program. Here's a question from Nathaniel. I know Jesus was without sin, so what does it mean that he became sin for us? Um, that's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And Nathaniel, unfortunately, what it means is that while he was sinless, spotless, perfect, on that cross, during those six hours, he was put on public display and he became sin. Now, the best way I can describe this, Nathaniel, and I always personalize it, is that I think of the worst things I've ever done. I've done a lot of really, really horrible things. And Jesus became that sin. As he cleansed me of that sin, he became that sin and accepted the wrath of God, the necessary wrath of a holy God for that sin. So it's very important, Nathaniel, that you understand this isn't figurative speech. He literally became sin. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I've done horrible things. Well, Jesus became a thief, became a liar in my place. And the only way that he was qualified to do that was to be perfect. I mean, he had to be uh, an acceptable sacrifice, a lamb without spot or blemish. And in the process, imagine what it was like for holy, almighty God, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
to experience sin for the very first time. I personally think this was the most difficult thing that Jesus had to deal with on the cross. I think this was the source of most of his agony in Gethsemane. For you and for me, we think, well, it's not a big sin. Uh, Any sin was a huge sin for Jesus. So Nathaniel, that's what it means. He literally became your sin. And he accepted the punishment your sin deserved. So he could cry out, Father, forgive Nathaniel, for he knows not what he's doing. This is the greatest gift in the history of the world, that Jesus, who was 100% perfect, pure, soiled himself with our sin and accepted the wrath of his Father. That's love. That's love. Well, we're still waiting for some phone calls. I hope the phones are working at KSLR. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We will be back on the other side of the break. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll see you in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to Pastor Ron KSLR at gmail.com. That's Pastor Ron KSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 on this Tuesday. Here is a question from Donald. Uh, did Abraham speak Hebrew exclusively? Donald, Abraham was a Gentile, a pagan, um, an idol worshiper. Um, he, as a Brahm, and he was, um, uh, Hebrew would not have been his native language. In fact, there would be no Hebrew language. Uh, he, he would have spoken the language of the people of the time, a general, we might say, Palestinian language. Uh, but uh, Abraham did not speak Hebrew um, until he invented it, I guess. So he would have spoken the languages of the people around him. Let's go to our first question. Margaret from San Antonio on line one. Margaret, good to hear from you. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, it's Margaret from Floresville. I um, wanted to call and uh, thank Stephanie Marquez for her <laughs> sweet summer devotion yesterday. I listened to it. I... Um, I guess because of the uh, situation for the last few months, my husband's been working from home. My granddaughter's back. I care for my almost 80-year-old mom, and things get stressful, and you start to feel unappreciated. And then I heard Stephanie say, (laughs) you don't know if you have the heart of a servant unless you are treated as a servant. And it's like, okay, Jesus, you're right. I need to be doing it for you and not for myself or anybody else. So I know that she sounded like her heart was so scared or nervous, but she reached, and it was so it was so weird this morning. I woke up with an email from Sam's to pick up my order. My granddaughter was still asleep, and I had an hour or two to go run an errand and <laughs> Stephanie was in the car with me. 
So oh. Jesus used her like crazy this morning. And I came back with a new attitude. And my husband's very grateful. So <laughs> tell her, <laughs> tell her thank you. And it was not for nothing. He had oh. me on her heart. Margaret, God bless you. Thank you for that. And and I know that will be a blessing to uh, to Stephanie, so I will let her know. Thanks so much. You know, that's how the Lord works, just when we need it. You know, that's a quote. Stephanie was quoting my pastor, Chuck Smith, and I've used that quote like a thousand times just because nothing is better. You know, we think we're we're ready to serve and, and you know, use me, Lord. And then somebody treats us like a servant and we get angry. Jesus said, well, wait a minute. I I said to you in the Gospel of John, go and do likewise. When I washed the feet of my disciples, especially first, I washed the feet of my betrayer. And and that's the the model in Scripture for uh, servanthood. And um, we don't like it. My flesh hates it. Um, but and it's those corrections where the Lord really shows you where your heart's gone off just a little off course, and he's always faithful to get it back. So, Margaret, thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Margaret. I don't think it's the same Margaret. This one says, uh, Pastor Ryan, Luke 17, Jesus said to remember Lot's wife. What does that mean? Um, Margaret, in, in Jesus' warning in Luke 17, Jesus is warning uh, the people who are rejecting him um, that, uh, that judgment is coming. So he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. This begins in verse 26. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. And then he says it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now, the reference to remember Lot's wife, we remember that she could have escaped with her husband from the judgment that was going to rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were told by the destroying angels, look, we've got to go, don't look back. And the, the, the Hebrew word there is, is in, in the story in, in Genesis, is that she looked back with longing. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah was a party place, it was an abundant place in terms of, of material prosperity. Uh, and, and so it was just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry kind of thing. And um, when Lot, who dragged his tried to drag his family out, uh, his witness so compromised that his sons-in-law were killed in Sodom and Gomorrah. And while he was saying, "Come on to his wife, come on to his wife," she stopped to look back, and then she turned, of course, into a pillar of salt. So we are to remember Lot's. Wife, that's verse 32 in Luke 17. And then he says this, and here's the key, I think, of this particular teaching of the Lord. He says, Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. You see, Lot's wife, by looking back, was trying to preserve her old life. And Jesus is telling us, Don't be like her, don't perish, but instead lose your life for his benefit. 
And another of the gospel accounts says, when we lose his life for his sake, that's when we'll really find it. And uh, Margaret, I have found over the years, so many times, I've seen people who, when they finally got fed up trying to preserve their, their way of life in this world, and they just abandoned it to Christ, they found out what real life was really all about. They found out what the joy of the Lord was. So that's what it's all about. Don't look back to the things of this world. Once you decide in your heart, I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to follow Jesus, don't look back. He won't turn you into salt, but your life can get pretty salty if you're compromised in that way. Sam asked the question, if the Nephilim were killed in the flood, why were there still Nephilim in the world after the flood? Um, you know, the Nephilim we know in Genesis chapter 6, we know all of the, the, the Nephilim were, were destroyed in the flood of Noah. Um, but it's a general word used to describe what we would call giants. So, um, you know, we, we'd look at somebody who's really tall and, and make a comment. Well, in, in the ancient world, they would refer to them as Nephilim. And, and so it was just a carryover from the time of, of uh, Noah and his family. So it just would have been a general way of describing. It's not the same people, not from the same tribe. Um, we know, for example, that Goliath, well, most famous giant in the world, um, um, Goliath wasn't a Nephilim, but uh, Raphaim and Nephilim would be words used to describe who they are. So it wasn't the same people. Those people were all destroyed in the flood. And uh, the way was paid for us. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Thomas wants to know why didn't God prevent Peter and Paul from being killed by Rome? And how old do you think they were when they died? Um, Thomas, not only did did God not keep them from being killed, He predicted their death. Remember, in, in both cases, Second uh, Timothy chapter th- um, three, or the, actually Second Timothy of the book, and in uh, uh, Peter, um, in in Second Peter, they, they know very clearly that their end is coming. Um, they were going to be martyred, and they knew it. So it wasn't um, God's intent to to rescue them from it. Um, their martyrdom would be their entrance into heaven, which Paul says is better by far than even faithful service here. So I think, Thomas, sometimes we get the idea, the false notion, certainly not a biblical notion, that if we serve God and if God is good, he will keep bad things from happening. Nothing can be farther from the truth. So God didn't protect them. Now, there was a time he protected Peter. Remember that Herod was going to have him beheaded after James became the first of the um, the, the apostles to be martyred for their faith. Um, Herod saw how much that pleased the, the Jews, so he was going to, to do the same with Peter, and God rescued him. Why didn't God rescue James the night before? Well, there's no answer. It's the sovereign will of God. And while he rescued Peter that time, there would be a time coming at the end of his life where he wouldn't be rescued. As to how old they were, um, Peter and, and Paul were contemporaries in age. 
And the best information that we have, and it's only a guess, was that they were about 60 years old. Now, in the ancient world, 60 was super old. The average life of a woman in in uh, in the first century was 37 years of age. The, the men made it to just a little over 40. That was just the average. So when you'd see somebody who was 60 years old, you'd walk around and say, wow, they're really old and they're still being used by God. So uh, Paul, it's a little easier to place the age of his, his uh, um, beheading uh, and, and that... Uh, that was about 60 years old, and I think Peter was pretty much the same. Good question, Thomas. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Jimmy on line one from San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, hi. Oh, I just need you to hi, pray Jimmy. for Martha. Hi. Okay. Yeah, just pray for her. She went to the Hill Country this Sunday and came back with allergies. Oh. You can. Yeah, I don't know if you can hear it. I'm nasally, Jimmy, for the same reason, but I don't think it's allergies. It's the uh, that dust, the Saharan dust that's in the air. So uh, we'll pray for her. Thank you very much. Let's pray for her now. Let's pray for everybody who's suffering from this. Lord, we lift up Martha. Um, we're grateful um, that we get this opportunity. Help her with her allergies. Help her with this dust. Uh, Lord, we got to be able to we got to be able to serve you. We need the strength and energy. So pour out your Spirit upon her and through her. We pray for your glory. Amen. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. Here is a question from Nelson. Huh? Uh, I hadn't read this one yet. I believe the death of Ravi Zacharias has left a huge hole in our faith. Who do you think will fill that hole? Um, Nelson, a couple of things. Now, now. You ask this question, you must know I'm a fan of Ravi. Um, and his death um, hit me pretty hard. Uh, the suddenness of his death hit me hard. And I'm always aware of the suddenness of death. But um, um, here's, the, here's the thing you need to understand. As, as, as wonderful an apologist... Um, even more general, as wonderful a believer as Ravi was, with all of the gifts that God has given him, God never leaves a hole that he doesn't fill. He never does. You know, God doesn't need us. He didn't need Ravi. He used him. He gave him gifts. But you see, the work of God is always going to get done. You know, Nelson, I, uh, I'm i 69 years of age and been here for 25 years. And, and I have, I hope, done a pretty good job of preparing my church for the day when I'm not here anymore. And, um, you, you know, they need to understand that when I go, there won't be less fruit. There'll be more fruit. That's just the way God works. Um, RZIM, the, the, the wonderful ministry that, that Ravi established, um, I know some of the men who are um, serving in that ministry, and, and, and believe me, not only are they gifted and they're capable, but this is a time now when they can blossom. Vince Vitale, um, Michael Ramsden, um, uh, just, there's others, and names are escaping me now, but I know them, most of them very, very well. They're, 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 God has prepared them 
to step in. And believe me, RZIM will be more fruitful after Ravi's death than they were before. That's just the way God always works. You know, Nelson, I always think of Joshua, who I think, personally, had the single most difficult job in all of Scripture to replace Moses. We have no idea. We, We... Westerners, we can't begin to understand the reverence with which Moses was held. Moses was the guy, you go talk to God for us. Moses is the one who came down with his face shining because of his encounters with the Lord. Moses was the man of whom it was said, I spoke to him like a friend speaks to a friend face to face. And all of a sudden, he's dead. And God tells Joshua, and you're in charge. Now, why do you think in the book of Joshua, the first chapter that we're all so familiar with, why do you think God said to him over and over and over, do not be afraid, be of good courage, be of good cheer? It's because Joshua couldn't imagine taking over for Moses. They were impossible shoes to fill. And so what you need to do is just think of this issue from God's perspective. I love what he told Joshua. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Basically, that's God saying, okay, get over it. Moses is gone. I've chosen you now. You do the work that I've called you to do. And, and Joshua was prepared. He didn't know he was prepared, but he was prepared. He was the one that was always hanging around on the mountain even after Moses left. He just wanted to be where Moses was. He wanted to be where God and Moses had been. He was prepared. He was a man of the word. And what God was saying to Joshua is, look, we're going to do something new here. It's not going to be me communicating to the people through Moses. Now I'm going to be communicating through my word. Don't turn to the left or to the right. And that's the way God's been dealing with us ever since. Through his word, his living word, Jesus. And it's written word, our Bibles. So Nelson, as great a loss as Ravi's death is, um, believe me, RZIM, as long as people keep walking in the Spirit and holding on Jesus, RZIM will do a wonderful, wonderful job. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from anonymous. Is addiction to porn a legitimate reason to divorce? Oh, those are so hard. Um, take my answer with a grain of salt. Um, I'm not living in your home. I don't know what you're experiencing and what you're having to deal with. Addiction to porn, porn period, is a horrible sin. It does more damage to a marriage than we can possibly imagine. Uh, It is used by the devil as a club um, to demean a wife. Um, There's nothing virtuous about it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It is pure evil. Um, but I don't think it's a legitimate reason for divorce. Um, I think it's kind of the same thing with with uh, 
verbal abuse. You know, um, if, if a man is beating you physically, then you need to leave that marriage. But uh, I think if a man is verbally abusive, or or the other way around in this case, um, then then I think you know it's a different standard. I I I think we get close to the Lord. I think His grace is sufficient. And I think uh, while porn, pornography is not um, physically cheating on a spouse, it's certainly emotionally and mentally cheating on a spouse. And when we start looking at pornography, it gets such a hold of our of our, 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 our soul, our mind, that distorts everything. So it's horrible. Um, if you if your husband is addicted to porn, uh, you're a Christian. You're listening to a Christian radio program. Um, then you need to go talk to somebody at your church. Um, if your husband is a professing Christian, you need to let him know that this just isn't acceptable. And in in the two of you are going to go and talk to your pastor at church. Um, but is it a legitimate reason for divorce? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it rises to the level of uh, of adultery in a physical sense. And um, even as I say that, I know there are a whole bunch of people that will disagree very strongly with that. But uh, I, I just don't think it does. That's the best I can do. So, Anonymous, I'm sorry for your circumstance. Here's a question. Ooh, this is really hard from Martin. How would a spouse respond when confronted with a spouse who believes themselves to be transgender. Um, Martin, that would be fraud. That would be adultery. Um, um, I think if you're a believing spouse and you find out your spouse believes themselves to be transgender and they want to live um, the transgender lifestyle, uh, I think that's not only grounds for divorce, uh, but I think that's a mandate to divorce. Um, what somebody believes about themselves doesn't make it true. I believe with all of my heart that I'm six foot two, and I ought to be playing in the NBA. Um, but but of course neither of those things is true. Um, if somebody is born a male, um, they're male regardless of emotionally what they believe. This whole idea that has been foisted upon us. That gender identity is just as real as actual gender uh, is criminal. I mean, it's it's surely from the pit of hell. So uh, if you have a spouse and he or she comes home and says, uh, we need to talk, I believe that I'm locked in the wrong body and I'm going to live um, the lifestyle of the other gender, um, then then you would need to divorce at that point, that's that would be what my response would be, Martin. We, we've got to be willing to tell the truth in love, and we've got to be able to use our brains. You know, we've just in the in the sense of being, uh, I'm sorry, in the mission of being sensitive and loving and accepting. And the word I hate, woke. Um, you know, we're we're trying to embrace all things. Oh, it's let everybody live their truth. Well, there isn't. Any truth but one. And in this matter of gender, it is the easiest, most identifiable truth. You are born with male or female. 
DNA. And all you have to do is look in a mirror, and it's easy to pick the one that you are. And that's the gender we have to choose. We don't get an option. We don't get to remake it. We're, we're literally blaspheming God as Christians when we accept a transgender lifestyle. We're literally saying that people made in the image of God, created in the image of God, that God somehow got it wrong. I had a question, I think it was in last week's show, that, well, could God possibly have made a mistake? And the answer is, of course not. God never makes mistakes. Um, we may not be happy with what God has made, but see, the mistake then is ours and not theirs. So, Martin, uh, when that confrontation occurs, that's cheating, that's adultery, that's fraud, that's all the other things, and uh, you have been deserted by that spouse. Three four zero ninety five. Well, we're only in three three minutes. So we're in three okay, this one. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jason says, uh, "Does your church stand up when the Bible is being read?" I've noticed some churches do and others do not, and why? Um, Jason, ours does not. Now, every once in a while, we'll get somebody in the church who, when I will say uh, our study day begins in verse such and such of this chapter, would you read along with me, please? Then, then um, you know, half a dozen times over the years, there's been people from those kinds of traditions, and uh, they will stand up while the word is being written. Um, and that's all it is. It's tradition. Uh, it's the background that you come from. I don't see anything wrong with it, nor do I think there's anything wrong with staying in your chair and reading the Bible that way. I don't think the, 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 the physical position uh, that we read our Bibles in matters at all to God. I think what matters is the condition of our heart and are our hearts open and ready. So we do not, and I read scriptures. Um, uh, I love being able to say when we finish a book like we did last Friday night, Lord, we thank you that we've read, as a church body, together we've read another whole book. Uh, so believe me, I I'm, I'm, have a real high view of the scriptures, um, but I just don't think the physical position. Jason, this to me would be something along the lines of, of people who, you know, well, do I need to pray in a closet? Do I need to be on my knees? Uh, do I need to be stretched out, um, um, prostrated? And the answer is... Um, no, the position of the heart is really the only thing that matters. So what was that time? About 40 seconds. Oh, okay. I thought I had time for one more question, but I don't. So, Jason, that's that's the important thing. The important thing is um, make sure your heart is open and ready to receive from whatever God has for you as the Word is written. So um, we don't do that here at Calvary Chapel. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Be careful out there in the, in the dust. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And I appreciate more than you know that you take the time to tune in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing, at AM 630 at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I need the word to stand on.